Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Visiting the Presidents. This is episode two, and today we will be discussing John Adams and his birthplace at Braintree, now called Quincy in Massachusetts, not too far from Boston. So this is the second episode. I'm still getting the hang of recording, but I am really excited with how the first episode went. I'm hoping that you're enjoying it as well. There are some things I'm going to want to pay a little bit more attention to going forward, including giving you a little more information about the parents of the presidents uh, when we talk about their upbringing. And so that's something I'm definitely going to do a little bit more, especially starting today. So John Adams was born on October the 30th, 1735, in a little village called Braintree. It's now Quincy, and I learned that it's not Quincy, the way most Americans would pronounce it, but rather Quincy, Z-E. And he was born in the home of his parents, John and Susanna. He is going to be named for his father, John. John had and they'll later refer to him as Deacon John. He was a pillar in Braintree. He served as a constable in the village. He was a tax collector, and he was also a deacon in his church. And he took very seriously the idea that he descended from the pilgrims in Plymouth, John and Priscilla Alden. His mother, Susanna, is going to not have too much records. Um, John doesn't really write too much about his mother, but he does discuss her fiery temper and the fact that Deacon John, John's father, was a little too generous, and they would often get into these kinds of squabbles in front of John. He later writes something to the effect that he noticed that other families were governed by reason And his family was governed by emotion, and that was something that he did not like. One of the interesting themes of these first few presidents is we're going to see some kind of estrangement from a parent. And oftentimes that, of course, can lead to um, some real failures. And we see, you know, where people have a lot of baggage that they carry around with them after that type of estrangement. And then in other cases, as with some of these founders, like when we talked about George Washington last week, down the road when we talk about Thomas Jefferson, when we talk about Abraham Lincoln, and then in recent presidencies, if you think about Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, it is interesting to know how many of them suffered from the type of parent relationship either because their parents were dead or because there was some kind of estrangement. And so in some cases, that serves as a huge motivator, and it makes the individual want to supersede. Now, with John, it's debatable whether or not this estrangement is going to poison him down the road, where it's going to make him all the more uh, focused on ambition and in some ways become very harsh on his children, that they need to, like he did, uh, supersede his own attributes. And we'll see where, for John, he's going to 
and this will be covered in season two, lose two children to alcohol abuse. And of course, one of the other sons is going to become the sixth president of the United States. So it's not a complete failure, but it is interesting that that is going to, you know, you can go one of two ways. And that's kind of what happens there. After Deacon John dies, Susanna will get married for a second time. And that husband and John, they do not get along. And that's going to kind of also cause this estrangement. There's some conjecture about whether or not Susanna would have been illiterate. John talks about learning to read from her, but we don't know if that is him trying to kind of paper over later in life, or if in fact she was illiterate and that that might be why he doesn't correspond with her later in life. It does seem like the two of them kind of got along and it might be one of those things where he understands her better. And we think that the fact that his mother felt very good about sharing her viewpoints with Deacon John, that that served as a model for John when he marries Abigail Adams, one of our more forceful first ladies, that he was willing to hear these ideas from a woman because he grew up in a house where that was experienced. And I'm sure many of you can relate to that kind of situation. So John does have two brothers and Elihu is one of them. And he, I thought this was interesting. He died of contagious distemper is what they they titled it um, during the American revolution. I'm not really sure (laughs) when I think of distemper, I think of a a wounded animal, that kind of thing. Um, Of course, John is also the second cousin of Samuel or Sam Adams, who was a patriot and kind of, in my mind, is going to lure John to take up arms against uh, the British government down the road and and become a little bit more of the the force for the patriot fervor. John does not record too much about his childhood or childhood memories and in some ways shares along with his son John Quincy this disdain <laughs> for who they were as children. Um, but from all accounts, it appears he enjoyed what we would consider a carefree youth. He liked to play outside, including flying kites, making toy boats that he liked to sail, um, shooting marbles, and what they called driving hoops. But above all was his interest in hunting. And he would go out and spend all of his free time killing any New England animal that he could shoot, going so far as to take his gun to school so that when the bell would ring, he wouldn't have to go home and get his gun. He could just leave the classroom with it, which you couldn't do today and for obvious reasons. But Deacon John was getting worried that John was wasting his intelligence. And in some ways, this goes back to that idea of wanting him to improve on his own circumstances. And he wants John to have that same ambition, that same drive, and is really kind of disappointed or worried when John isn't sharing it. We think today that a lot of that had to do with his teacher, and the teacher was was really kind of cruel from an, a bystander's viewpoint. The, the teacher was you know, sometimes you hear people say, oh, it's the teacher's fault. In this case, it kind of was. But uh, Deacon John is going to really want to hammer home to John, like, you want to do better. And when he asks John, what are you going to do? What do you want to be? John says, well, I want to be a farmer. I want to do what you're doing. And Deacon John's going to say, 
no, <laughs> like you're going to school. I want you to be a minister. I want you to go to Harvard. That would be the local school in the area that everybody respected and aspired to. And he wants John to want that same ambition, want that same drive. And so John says, no, I want to be a farmer. And so Deacon John says, well, I'm going to teach you what farming's like. And the next day he gets him up early and works him from sunup till sundown. He's covered, caked in mud. He looks awful, bedraggled. He's exhausted physically, and he's ready to do it again. And some people say it's just one day that he does this. Others say it's over the course of two weeks. But at the end of this experiment, the father says, well, John, uh, are you satisfied with being a farmer? And of course, John, being super stubborn, looks him square in the eye and says, I like it very well, sir. And Deacon John, of course, is going to say, well, I don't care. (laughs) You're going to school. You're not going to be a farmer. Now, in terms of his personality, the stories we get of John Adams, those of you who might have read David McCullough's kind of seminal work on John Adams or seen the HBO miniseries, you know that John is going to be a very kind of persnickety, difficult, stubborn. The list is very long in terms of the adjectives, all of them adding up to the idea that he would have been really hard to be around. And I loved one quote that I found where they said, John loved humanity, but he hated human beings. And I think we all know somebody like that, right? We all have somebody in our lives that is going to be like that. He's going to have this quote, there are few people in this world with whom I can converse. I can treat all with decency and civility, and I can converse with them, but I am never happy in their company. He's going to later say that he inherits, he in his mind, his mood swings and a what he calls pugnacious streak from his mother. But we also are aware that he is susceptible to these huge bouts of depression. And that is something that, you know, just was not spoken about. And so that might have been something playing into his distemper or being really difficult to be around. He was really devoted to his family and uh, especially his children, but he would appear to be very cold and aloof to other people, even people he was intellectual peers with. You know, we'll later talk about his relationship with Thomas Jefferson, and he'll enjoy being around these great thinkers and great writers, but it's also something where I think there's a little bit of an inferiority streak within him that he doesn't want to give that other person an advantage. And so that leads him to being kind of a prude. And we'll see where that will later be somewhat of his downfall when it comes to his political life and ambition there. In terms of his religion, John was a Unitarian. And just as a quick overview, Unitarians reject the idea of the Holy Trinity, and the divinity of Christ. And so he is going to believe that Jesus was a mortal and good man and doesn't necessarily buy into the miracles. He has absolutely no use for people he sees as rigid Calvinists and deists. And he says that he does believe in an afterlife and the idea of divine intervention, but he doesn't devote a whole lot of writing on the topic. So there's that. 
And ultimately, he's going to have a bit of a kind of skepticism when it comes to ministers, having been raised by Deacon John, where he knows his father likes to tell these off-color jokes when it's just him and people he's close with. And so there's that sense of hypocrisy that John is very critical of, and obviously maybe a little too, too critical. In terms of his education, like we talked about, he really does not get off on the right foot in terms of the schooling that he is doing. He goes to a Latin school, and he just does not want to learn the Latin. When he finally switches instructors, he is going to flourish, and he finds topics that he's really interested in and really uh, is going to suddenly kind of switch gears, and it's exactly what Deacon John had kind of hoped for. He ends up, of course, getting accepted into Harvard College. It's one of the great prides of John and Susanna's life that they, their son is going to Harvard, and there he's going to really excel and enjoy math and philosophy. He joins a reading club where they would take turns reading new publications that were just coming either from England or from other colonies, and uh, poetry and drama. And when he reads, he loves the response that he's getting from the people in the club. They are wrapped with attention, and he recognizes, oh, I can, I do this well. Like, this is something that I'm good at. And so that is kind of going to hook in his mind later in life. After he graduates, he's going to teach briefly, but he is consumed with the idea that he's a great man, and I put that in quotes. And so he wants to kind of fulfill his parents' ambition for himself, as well as what he's starting to feel about himself. He he feels like he's destined for great things, and he really looks down on the kids that he teaches. He keeps calling them tots that are obsessed with the alphabet, which, you know, when you're a kid, it's kind of the program, right? He's going to then kind of think back to when he was happiest, and that's going to be at Harvard in this reading club and getting to speak and argue. And he decides I'd be a really great trial lawyer. And so he studies with James Putnam in Worcester and takes the Massachusetts bar in 1758. Now, back then, there wouldn't have been the law school that we're familiar with today. And instead, it would have been up to the individual colony and how they set their standards. And so when he will see some presidents that will study in a kind of professional setting, but most of the uh, presidents who become lawyers are going to study with a existing lawyer and then be able to take this test. Once he studies and passes the bar, he gets a letter from his father inviting him to come back to his birth home in Braintree, now Quincy, and to open up his law practice in the house, which is really awesome. And so when you go to his birthplace there in Quincy, you get to see that birth home, but you also get to see his first uh, kind of office. Um, and he becomes a trial lawyer, including he gets to defend John Hancock when Hancock is accused of smuggling wine into Boston without paying the tax or the duty. And he is also famously going to be tasked with defending the British officers at the Boston Massacre in 1770, much to the chagrin of you know some of his family and neighbors who are going to be incensed by the idea that uh, Bostonians were fired upon by the British officers. And John is going to want to say, you know, we need to make sure that they have a fair trial. And if that means me having to take the case, like, we want to be able to show the British 
we can handle it. We we have the same standards. We have the same ideas about justice. Uh, we are not these moralist people living over here. He also, during this period, is going to publish several essays on political theory, and he's so kind of worried about backlash that he publishes under a pseudonym. And in many ways, to me, that's, that signals the idea that he is going to, again, still harbor this kind of inferiority complex where if it works, it's great and he can accept the credit. But if it doesn't, he doesn't want to ruin the reputation that he's starting to gain. During this period, he's going to be elected to the Massachusetts uh, legislature at a time when Massachusetts is, of course, being kind of looked at warily by the British. And so he becomes one of these individuals who is kind of a moderating force as Boston gets closer and closer to this kind of outright rebellion. And it's going to be in that position and certainly the notoriety he gains after the Boston Massacre that is going to give him that stature that's required when he gets elected to the Continental Congress and then becomes a diplomat during the revolution. Now, in season two, when we talk about John Adams, we'll get into the period during the revolution and then his diplomacy after the revolution, as well as then his service as vice president. So this is where we'll take off from for John Adams and his early life uh, before the uh, presidency. So let's talk about the birth site what happened to it, and how it's preserved. This is the oldest of the presidential birthplaces that is still preserved in its original form and that it is open at least part of the year, and we'll talk about that. It is described almost always. Anytime you look up at the John Adams birth site, it's always going to say it's a salt box. And what they mean by that is it would have been, uh, looks like a container that would have held your salt during this time. And so it's kind of like a trapezoid <laughs> from the outside and not just the kind of rectangle that you might be thinking when you think of a house. We do know that there is going to have been a brick that was found in a renovation in 1896 that dates the house back to 1681. So we believe that is when the house would have been constructed. This home is going to be kind of rare for that time where it's going to be pretty large, has nine rooms on the ground floor. There will be four that you can walk around in. You can't go to the second floor, but the main floor has, uh, like I said, four rooms and it has eight foot ceilings. And that would have been considered a kind of extravagance at the time. And so when you look up, you'd be able to, for homes during this time, especially in New England, heating the place would have been a real concern. And so the higher ceilings meant that you had a little bit more to, to spare. He was born in the front chamber of the home. And like I said before, he's going to return there after Harvard. And this is going to be where he takes up his law practice. After Deacon John dies, he's going to leave the home to John's brother, Peter, and then give John this house that's next door to the salt box home where he was born. And it's going to be in that home where he and Abigail will uh, live and give birth to their children, including John Quincy Adams. So it's a kind of two for one. When you go to Quincy, you get to see John Adams, and then maybe 20 feet away, you can see John Quincy Adams' birthplace, which is awesome. Um, So John's mother is going to stay in the birth site home, now under Peter's direction, until she dies 
and she dies in the very first year of John Adams's presidency. And so John then inherits both homes. Peter kind of gives up the, uh, his interest in the home. And so John gives it to his son, John Quincy, who will, of course, later become the president. And he'll also give him the home that they, they live in after the presidency, Peacefield, which you can also tour when you go to the Adams National Park. Uh, so throughout the 1800s, John is going. To, John Quincy, sorry, is going to treat the home kind of as a rental property, and eventually that will lead to the home being the homes being sold off a parcel at a time, until eventually Charles Francis, John Quincy's son, is going to give the deed for the homes, the birth sites, and John Quincy's uh, home peace field to what he calls the Adams chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution to use as a headquarters for their meetings. And so they paint the home. They think that the home would have been bright red when John lived there. They're wrong. <laughs> and so they paint it bright red. And then after a while, they say, you know what? Uh, I don't think that's the way it was supposed to be. And so they end up having the paint removed. And so today when you go to visit, it's a brown color. It looks like the wood that would have been underneath it. But they open the home for tours when the Daughters of the Revolution are not using the spot. And so in 1940, they're going to turn over the home to the town of Quincy. And then in 1960, 20 years later, they're going to have it designated as a National Historic Landmark. Today, both of the birth site, uh, birthplaces uh, and the home are going to be a part of the National Register of Historic Places. And the three of them, the three buildings, are going to be considered what they call the Adams National Historic Site. And they're going to kind of share the direction. So when you go to visit, you can uh, get a ticket and you get to see all three. And it's run under the National Park Services this way. So now when you go to Quincy, what would what would happen? In the months between May and October, you know, that's when it's going to be open. And I know this year with COVID, there were restricted hours and that kind of thing. Um, it is odd that it's only open between May and October, but that's the way it operates. And we'll see that in some of these other birth sites and uh, historic sites. So you do want to make sure that you're checking the website. And if you're planning a visit, you want to make sure that this is something that you look into. It would be a real bummer. Now, if it is closed, you can still find the site, right? And take a photo in front of both birth, uh, birthplaces as well as Peacefield. But in terms of getting to go inside, you do need to go during those months and you do need to get a ticket. Now, when I went, the ticket was $15. And when I looked online, it was $15. But what ends up happening is you uh, sign in at the visitor center, you tell them you want a tour, $15. And they give you a spot uh, on the trolley. And they come along with the trolley, you get in there, they give you kind of the lay of the land of Quincy, they drive you to the two birthplace spots, you get to go inside of both of them, get back on the trolley and go to Peacefield, which again, we'll talk about in season two, and get to tour that site. And then you come back and it's all really enjoyable. In addition to the uh, visitor center, there is a short film that you can watch about the Adams family, not the uh, TV show. 
uh, but rather this Adams family and their kind of legacy, including John Quincy's son, who becomes a pretty well-known historian. Um, there's also a gift shop, which I found had a lot of really kind of cool uh, New England-related books and uh, different items in that way. There's also small exhibits, and that is going to be what you find there. Now, when you go to the house, and again, remember that when you get off the trolley, you get to go inside both houses, and they'll lead you through. Now, when you go to the John Adams birthplace, as opposed to John Quincy's, John's birth site is going to be much plainer. There's not as much decoration on the birthplace of John and the home of Deacon John and Susanna. And what you would find when you go into the first room is going to be really kind of the what they would have used to to kind of get through the winter months. And so his mo- mother was using the loom to make her own thread. And the father uh, during winter months would oftentimes make shoes when he wasn't farming. And so he has kind of his equipment there. What you would notice, one of the first things that you would notice about that ground floor is going to be this humongous fireplace that is going to be a feature in two of the uh, main rooms. The The first room would have really been kind of like a gathering place, and it would have served as their kind of uh, eating room as well as where they would hang out and do some of that work. They had a kind of showroom where, you know, what we would consider to be a living room. When I was growing up, you you didn't do anything in the living room. You kept that for like company. It's kind of how this would work. And later that's going to be the room that John uses for his law practice. And so it would have been used for that. Now, Deacon John would hold town meetings in another kind of adjacent room. And then there's the room that's kind of in a lean-to that would have served as the kitchen and so when, when it's summer and you have the fire going and all of the cooking going, it wouldn't have uh, made the rest of the house as unbearable. And so that was kind of the operation there. Now, I haven't been to the second floor, and I don't believe that they opened that at all for tours or anything of that, that sort, but that would have been where the bedrooms are. And so you do get that view of, of this floor. Now, remember, this would have been John's birthplace and then his, basically his office, but it's in the second house, the second birth site, that uh, we see the effects of when John and Abigail live together. And so it'll be kind of interesting when we talk about John Quincy in episode six, that we'll be really talking about John and Abigail's home life. And when we talk about his parents, of course, we're talking about the president, John Adams, and his wife, Abigail. So, you know, that's what happens when you have a president uh, whose parents are presidents and We'll definitely get into that when we talk about that in episode two. Now, I went to visit in June of 2019. I did this little tour of some of the New England birthplaces. And so the day that I went, I was leaving from uh, New York City and I drove into Quincy and bought my ticket. They have a parking garage right there. Uh, There was, what I want to say, like a general store next door. And so I was able to get drinks and snack of some sort and then go on the tour. And I would say it lasted about an hour and a half, maybe two hours in total. The house is really amazing. The peace field where both the presidents lived after their presidency. It's a very cool house. And so there's a little bit more time spent in that one. Now, on that street in Quincy, it becomes known as Adams Street. And if you follow that street, you can go all the way to Milton, which is where George H.W. Bush is born in 
1924, just up the street, maybe, I'd say maybe five miles away. And so I did that. I took that street all the way to Milton. There's a uh, spot that we'll see and talk about in episode, it would be episode 40, um, when we talk about George H.W. Bush. And then Brookline, where John F. Kennedy is born, is not too far away from that spot. So in my mind, if you wanted to do all four of those birthplaces, that's what I did. I did that in a single day. If you wanted to spread it out a little bit more, in Quincy, you can also visit the grave sites of John and John Quincy. They're in a church that's unaffiliated with the Adams National Historic Site. They don't operate this church, but instead it's an operational church. There you can take the tour of the basement. There's usually a docent on staff, and we'll talk about that when we talk about the grave sites are in season three. So that's something that you can look forward to there. But if you're looking to plan, I really recommend giving yourself an afternoon or morning in Quincy and really getting to take in this experience of being in this town. You have statues and other historic markers and sites there in Quincy that gives you a real sense. You know, at the time, Quincy would have felt like a different uh, city, different town from Boston. Famously, during the revolution, Abigail takes her children to this hill where they can look at some of the battles that are going on in Boston a, a good distance away. Today, you can take a train from downtown Boston into Quincy and, you know, get to experience that that site. And it doesn't feel all that different from Boston. Today, it's a, a suburb of Boston. And that's going to be one of the major changes that, that happen here. But a lot to see in Quincy. I definitely recommend giving yourself that time to spend there. And then in terms of what it tells us about the president, one of the things that really kind of comes to mind is that there's a lot of pride with John Adams. There's a lot of, of course, stubbornness is one of the first things that comes to mind and this real ego. But that really belies, in truth, a real pride in his parents, in who he was raised to be, and the way that he saw himself as a figure of respect in his city, and uh, certainly down the road in his country. And when he wanted to be a farmer, he was looking at it as a means to, you know, carry on this, what he saw as a tradition of being kind of salt of the earth, you know, if it's good enough for my father, it's good enough for me. And that it's really to Deacon John's credit that he wants his son to kind of shoot higher. And when John is done being president, he wants to come back to that. He wants to come back to this experience. And they're going to live in a, a bigger home and, you know, decorate it the way they want in a way that's going to be in line with some of our other founders. But he also is going to have a real sense of pride in the idea that this is where I'm from. This is who I am. I am a New Englander. I'm a farmer. And so he does a lot of the work around the house when uh, he's an ex-president. And a lot of that really is informed by his childhood and by seeing the life that his, his father leads as something that he wants to do. So that's really something that you can take away from John Adams's birthplace. One last thing, I'm going to add a link to the episode site, and it'll be included on social media where I found from Houses Beautiful, where they do a COVID-friendly 
uh, tour of the Adams presidential sites, as well as Sagamore Hill and the Teddy Roosevelt birthplace and Franklin Roosevelt's home, I believe Mount Vernon as well. And for those of you who want to see this with your own eyes, you would be able to get to experience it. It's not quite the same as being there in person, but for right now, it's going to have to do. So I'll include that there as well. So that's it for episode two. When we come back next week, we'll be talking about John Adams's successor, Thomas Jefferson, president number three, and his birth spot in outside of Charlottesville, Virginia, spot that would have been called Shadwell, which is going to be the source of real Uh, controversy in terms of locating the exact spot, kind of like what we talked about with George Washington. And just as a spoiler, there's a little bit of trespassing that I'm going to talk about in episode three. So you won't want to miss that. Remember to be checking out the podcast website at visitingthepresidents.com, where you can find photographs of my trips, other images, and links to other readings and visitor information. For this episode, my sources were Doug Weed's The Raising of a President, William D. Gregorio's Complete Book of U.S. Presidents, and Louis Picone's Where the Presidents Were Born. I have added a PayPal link on the episode page on visitingthepresidents.com, as well as the episode page. Any monies received will be used for future trips, as well as the hosting fees for the website and for the podcast. Remember, you can also help support Visiting the Presidents by liking and subscribing on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you get this podcast, as well as being a fan of the social media sites. I am on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Visiting the Presidents. And remember to be checking out the website at visitingthepresidents.com and subscribing there as well. Now let's get in our cars and go to visit the presidents. See ya.